bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And our BFF of the pod is back. Hey, it's White Dave. (laughs) Dave's not here. (laughs) Well, you called me your favorite, what was it? Your favorite white returning male? Yeah. Well, you're the only white returning male. (laughs) So you're automatically the favorite. That's, uh, yeah, that was, that's the dream. That's Canadian participation in action. Okay. That is that is the perfect structural critique of whiteness in Canada. It was like, just sort of like there by default. Like, would you like to be a professor? Would you like to be a deputy minister? Would you like to be the prime minister? You're white in here. <laughs> Congrats. It's like going to a buffet and just being like, pick one. Yeah. And you, would you like some rice? Would you like some okra? Would you like... Some potatoes? What? Some some curry spice? <laughs> oh my god! Yes, yes, I saw that. Oh, oh boy! And that was a oh boy. Ooh. Was he thinking that like it was a curry curry powder mix? Was that I don't I don't understand what he was thinking. I don't I don't know I don't I don't I don't know. But I I was like curry's not as okay. <laughs> like I was just like and he wrote this whole like Washington Post article about how he doesn't give a shit and I didn't read the article but anyway um and so I I just he deserves to be mocked and then he complains on Twitter for, about being mocked well and then I like didn't he say like oh the audacity of like Washington DC's top rated Indian restaurant putting like these spices in their food like <laughs> I was like, this has to be satire because no idiot who is writing a column in the Washington Post actually thinks that this is real. But I could be wrong. It's swinging a mess either way. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of like, I just, I just today got excited because the liberals might actually face plat this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest joke ever. So I, I'm now enjoying this election a little bit more. It's a little shot in Freida. Yeah. 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 I feel Burn that. it all down. I That's feel it. it's deeply frustrating because you want to see them held to account for their bullshit. And then of course, but the, the result of that usually is that you get a Tory government. And so now we're all being collectively punished for them being uh, high on their bullshit. And I, what do you do? What do you do? There's nowhere to turn. Well, Eric and I were talking about this earlier today, and it was uh, our, how we may be seeing the end of majority governments for the foreseeable future. It's got a bit of the early 2000s vibe where people were sick of the liberals after a decade, and they were sort of scandal plagued. Still arrogant because yeah. how they are repeating itself yeah but not ready for the tories so they you remember there was sort of this period of minority liberal minority tory lots of instability finally people sort of you know gave harper a shot he alienated people moving back to the old cycle but it's shorter this time the, the liberals turned real fast and i mean people think think back we forget stuff but think back to 2015 to 2017 and how popular trudeau, trudeau was and how unassailable he seemed mm-hmm. 
and then it turned fast oh, real right. fast Remember, well, they gave us a lot of ammunition. Look at all the scandals we've been through. Yeah. Like, remember, I heard, me- I heard Rudolph visited Global Affairs and they cheered for him? <laughs> yeah, it was a big controversy. Civil servants clapping. Canada's back, baby. Oops. That was wild. I can't, ima- I can't believe that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, offered not valid in Afghanistan. <laughs> Ooh, so let's talk about Afghanistan, actually. <laughs> like, I, I, I said in our group text... Is Afghanistan an issue? Like, is it one of those issues like the Syrian boy who drowned that just kind of pop up? Nobody, like I'm talking about 2015, blackface in 2019, following an SNC scandal. I mean, is it one of those issues um, that comes up that nobody has control over and it just dominates a cycle and it, punishes the incumbent it was this is what i mean this is such an old cliche but it's true it's sort of what harold mcmillan british prime minister was talking about when he said events dear boy events right things just happen that you can't predict or control they come up and they change things and people say okay including myself well nobody really cares but foreign policy doesn't determine votes and so on and so forth but there's a lot of things that hit you at a visceral level that i think shape your perception of parties and people and, and I do think that's happening with Trudeau on, on this file, because it's hard to look at this and not say, what the fuck are we doing? How do we fail these people? And, and of course, it also costs the liberals time and focus and the agenda. So I, I, I do think it actually matters. And it should matter. And, and I'm not saying it's just the liberal government's problem. We should have never been there in the first place. Other countries are having the same problem, including the US. But the, the liberals were in power for six years, have been. Uh, it was a problem before nobody dealt with it. Well, I'm sorry, you've, you've fucked up. Yeah. And it's okay. I have two comments. Number one, just coming from what you said, it is just further evidence of them saying shit and not doing shit. You know, it is the Canadian armed forces. Like you can't blame that on Harper. You know, you were in power all this time. You had a report. The, the, the whole way to fix the system was in black and white for you, and you still did nothing. Um, but there's also, so I think that's just like locally liberal, but I do think that what, what this Afghanistan is and why I think it's a thing is because it goes against a visceral way of, of Canadians' beliefs about ourselves the syrian boy who 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 drowned and it was that was an immigration a syrian uh foreign policy issue too but it actually impacted the way we felt about ourselves truthful or not or our image of ourselves and i think that that's what afghanistan is doing now and i think it's a similar thing Yeah, I think that's true, especially because both of these instances have largely been driven by the imagery associated with them, right? Like photojournalism right now, particularly um, on foreign policy, like they really impact what they, they really force us to hold up a mirror to ourselves because we can see um our values reflected back to us right like we were like oh like 
we are now allowing these decisions to be made. And now we have to look at what the reality is. Well, I just want to break and say um, that you just, (laughs) that was clever, like your use of the word image. So, and taking it to like the physical image level and basically adding heft to that, because it's true, like the physical image, images of suffering and that we are part of the problem to that suffering. I think it, it goes back to what David was saying on that visceral level. It And as an identity and as the self-image and physical images that we have in our minds about what Canada is, it's just, uh, Canadians just don't like that mm-hmm. at all. It's been a long time coming too. You know, the, the sort of, the liberals are very good at painting this image of Canada as sort of a force for good in the world, peacekeepers, uh, champions of human rights. But David, the when problem the is we believed it. We did, of and, course we did, and, and we want to. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is the fact that we bought into it is exactly what's biting them in the ass. Totally. And like, I mean, because not, the expectations are high. I don't want to say like it's an antiquated way of like viewing ourselves, but like that goes back to like the 80s and the 90s, right? Like that was always what we were told growing up is that we're peacekeepers, we're all these things. And so now as millennials are what the biggest voting block, Mm-hmm. Uh, we now still ha- we still haven't disassociated from those beliefs and those things we were told at those pivotal ages. Yeah, and I, I think the pushback now though is is intense, and we're reckoning with it. And and there's a I think there's a lag between recognizing that that's just not who we are, and and, and we never really were that, and and processing it right. And it's not there. That isn't to say that there aren't any positive elements to our foreign policy uh, if, I, if you if you talk about global health maternal health uh, i think a lot of good work is being done and the folks i pay attention to say good things about the liberals on that file but then you turn around and see venezuela and haiti and selling weapons to saudi arabia uh, failing, fighting in africa um, uh, you know to deal with interpreters and those who have helped the canadian forces currently with evacuations and and then you look at what our mining companies and other companies get up to abroad especially in south america and then the picture starts to turn a little bit right Uh, but bolivia my god right so (laughs) we don't even know what went down there Mm. but this is what i mean and and again i I think uh, first of all i think uh, the, the, the approving arms exports to saudi arabia while saying that you're a fem- you're pursuing a feminist foreign policy, ought to have turned people full stop. I mean, it's, it's clean. The the government chose jobs in a riding or two over the well-being and lives of of people in, in the Middle East. That was the choice, and then blame Stephen Harper. We see that all the time. Mining again. Mining companies are another great example. Supporting coups. How to, mm-hmm. you know, it's very eighties. Yeah, and I think that these these images that we're seeing, like. I wit they I think go into what really drives people to vote and like what makes people vote particular ways is like it evokes a feeling, right? And I wish that when it came to elections that we didn't we were a little bit more practical. I get that voting is very personal and very emotionally driven. But there are so many people that just are like, oh, well, I voted liberal last time. I voted for the conservatives last time. 
well, I guess I'll, and I've always voted for them. Doesn't matter who's running in my riding, as long as they have that that color, that that abbreviation by their name, I'm voting for them. And I wish that you know the the real policy discussions or well, quote unquote discussions that are happening now around Afghanistan and you know that were taking place around Syria were being had more broadly on actual economic issues that really affect our day-to-day lives because that just isn't happening. And so many, so few people actually care to get into those things. So I, I put together uh, some like key points for us to discuss and, you know, I made little like jokes beside each of the parties. And so, you know, continuing the discussion around the liberals, I put, hello, liberals, is anyone home? Because they just seem to keep like trying to like run up and like catch up to whoever's not necessarily leading in the polls, but leading in the discussions and the kind of the the zeitgeist. And I think right now that's in part the NDP and the conservatives. And so the liberals this week, they announced uh, their housing plan um, you know, their, their wealth tax is also getting a bunch of play. Sorry, yeah, Erica. such as it is. I, I, so Dave, I know you probably have stuff to say about the wealth tax. And I know Erica 100% has stuff to say about the, the housing strategy. Well, I, I want to say a little something about the, the approach. I mean, this is a good example of a faux progressive distraction. Uh, it, it, you, I'll, I'll leave it to Erica, but you certainly see it in the housing policy. And the, the parties pivoted to try to offer something to the left that is of the mold, soak the rich. And part of that is, well, we're going to tax a certain set of companies that make over X for a period of time, banks, for instance. And look, I'm never opposed to soaking the rich. Uh, especially, you know, I, I'm never opposed to taxing corporations aggressively, but with with a couple of caveats. One, uh, how much revenue are you going to really raise? And so people pointed out when it comes to banks, they don't expect to raise a ton. And two, who ultimately ends up paying for this? Are they, are they going to eat that or are they just going to pass it on to consumers? But on the banking sector in Canada, there is no competition, right? Uh, you have credit unions, but they're, they're sort of marginal competition. You're not going to get foreign competition. What's going to happen? Who's going to eat that? It's not, it's not going to be the banks. It'll be us. And I saw Paul Vieira point out on Twitter the day of the announcement, the banks sort of shrugged it off. You know, the, the shares, investors shrugged it off. Shares went down very briefly. They rebounded pretty quickly. People didn't seem to mind. So I, whenever companies don't seem to mind announcements that are targeted at taxing them, I just assume that those measures aren't serious, right? <laughs> if you're not scaring the shit out of these folks, then you're not playing ball. And so I, I just, I think it's a distraction. And incidentally, we can talk about this later. I wonder if the liberals are going to get desperate in the days and weeks to come and pull out a, like a whopper. And I've seen folks online sort of say, well, are they going to go UBI, for instance, to try to get people? Is, is UBI going to be the new electoral reform? David, for those who haven't read anything about the liberal wealth tax, can you give a quick little synopsis? Uh, the the um, the idea of of the the bank one or the um, like the bank thing I was talking whatever about? you were just talking about. 
Yeah, the idea, the, the liberals very simply want to uh, place uh, a tax on a range of corporations uh, targeted at banks, particularly, who have made over a certain amount of money. And uh, I think it was, what the hell was it? Uh, there was, was it a- Mike Moffat? Oh yeah, but so Mike, Mike took a run at it, but I'm trying to think of what the, what the, what the thing was. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I think that it was a billion. It was, you know, they were going to raise the rate a small percentage uh, over those for those who have made over a billion dollars. And it wasn't a huge jump. It was, you know, moderate. And the the goal was to basically tax profits to tax high profits. And it, and and of course, you know, the idea is it will raise some money. Uh, but a lot like the NDP wealth tax, it's it's it, it will raise a notable amount of money. But the goal is to okay, we're gonna we're gonna stick it to the fat cats. But uh, again, that doesn't solve any structural problems, right? If the liberals want to raise the the rate from fifteen percent on uh, to eighteen percent on on a certain amount of of profit. Uh, excess profit, by the way, right? Not total profit, <laughs> profit beyond a billion, then, uh, then, okay, fine. But again, what structural problem does that solve? None, right? Banks still are going to charge what banks charge. Banks still are going to exploit people. Uh, nobody's getting richer at the, bo- the bottom line. Is all, there's not going to be a huge transfer of, of wealth, even though this might fund some programming. And so I, I, I'm generally skeptical when it comes to these sorts of things. And again, I also think banks won't just eat this. I think they'll pass it on to consumers. So um, uh, this bank tax promise, uh, Mike Moffat, who is an economist on Twitter and has done some stuff, um he's done some stuff banks and, 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 and banks and, and i should say and, and insurance companies and insurance companies i've forgotten but it's yeah. a great synopsis for like a white guy he's done he, he says someone needs to explain to me how increasing corporate income tax on an industry sheltered from international competition is going to number one increase the cost of goods sold and number two deter for foreign investment He said, I mean, it's not corporate tax rates that's going to prevent Wells Fargo from setting up shop in Canada. One of the worst things academic economists do is go all eco one-on-one when doing policy analysis in areas where the one-on-one assumptions clearly don't apply. So perfectly competitive markets, no international trade barriers, etc. So basically what he's saying is, uh, I guess somebody talked about i guess global news um uh published an article about how you know trudeau's plan is going to drive away competition you know it's the same old neoliberal talking points and basically what mike moffat is saying is that's not how investment decisions are made they're not made on the base of corporate income taxes alone. And if you remember, do you do you know about the Kansas City experiment, David? No. About how Kansas City, Missouri, I want to say, they had dropped their corporate or their income tax rates, their corporate income tax rates to 0%. And it completely 
emptied the coffers and there was there weren't any there weren't many additional jobs right. there weren't many there the upside wasn't there and so um what happened mm. was schools lost funding social services lost funding um i'm sure the police didn't lose funding but we'll go you know yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you see what i'm saying it's this there's this neoliberal belief and it's been pounded into like at least two or three generations that somehow if your corporate income taxes are so high, it'll repel business investment. And that is false. It's inconclusive at best. Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent it is. But I mean, the, 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 so that, that is, that is true. And we fall for that all the time. But, but what gets me the most is that part of this idea the justification for this program and the sort of dividend model they want to adopt, sort of they call it a recovery dividend or something like that, post-pandemic dividend. Paid the idea whom? is, well, what's that, sir? Paid to whom? Well, to, to the state. I mean, the money that we were going to get from the banks comes to the state and it's going to help, you know, but isn't that I don't do what, I don't know. Is he explaining how taxes work? I don't understand. Well, yeah, but yeah, but, that, but that's, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly I it. I mean, so, it, it's, what, what is it a dividend? It's literally well, an opportunity cost payment. Okay, it's a, it's a branding exercise, right? And the idea is, well, we're going to make them pay a dividend from their from their profits. Uh, but over isn't a billion. that what taxes are? <laughs> well, I, I guess the idea is that they're trying to, to cast it as as us sharing in the profits of these major corporations, like a shareholder would get a dividend. That's my read of Yes, that. they're and called taxes. Well, like, I agree I with you. I agree. I agree. I, I'm sorry, David. I hate to belabor this point, and I'm not like beating up on you or anything. I just, I, I'm, I'm literally trying to understand the words that are coming out of your mouth right now. Well, <laughs> like, if you're looking for a there there, you're not going to find it because there is no there there. It's just a coat of paint that the liberals slap on this stuff to try to make it sound good. But my point is that like, I'm sorry, you folks, the government paid out the money to corporations during the pandemic, including big banks. And now you say, well, we're going to take some of it back. Okay, fine, but don't pretend like it's some ambitious noblesse oblige thing. You gave them our money, and now you're taking some of it back. <laughs> Congratulations, man! Great work. Uh, so it's it's uh, that's part of what I'm saying is it's highly dis- saying, distracting. But all they're saying is that they didn't design the policies properly in the first yes. place. Yes. Now, of so course, again, we'll I go back to, to fast, but like you know, you know, but you're right. They <laughs> they didn't design it. Yeah, they're basically they're basically. Uh, laugh at their grift well yeah and and they're gonna fix they're gonna fix their cock-ups and then and then call it a new policy then this is why people are pushing back saying like my well why didn't you do this it's the same thing when they then the liberals said well we're gonna go after tax avoidance i'm like that would be a great policy six years ago (laughs) you know you won and you could have you could have been aggressive about tax avoidance six years ago but you see that in every budget of course they do in literally every budget since they were elected in 2015 they've been saying uh, oh, more money for the CRA to go after um, tax evaders, offshore, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And like, nothing's happening. No, and they're talking about avoidance. I mean, you know, I mean, if we really wanted to get serious about this, we would say like, okay, we're going to find folks address by address who are in the Panama Papers, you know, we're gonna, and we're going to, to get serious about um, reforming the system so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. But I don't think they're going to do that. 
Uh, and and well, we've seen numbers on this. I cannot remember who did the, the costing. I think it was the PBL, but I could be wrong. That basically said for every dollar you invest in, in dealing with this, you get X return. And it was more than a dollar. So there was, it, it really is the sort of thing that is an investment because it gives you higher return than, than you pay out uh, at, the, at the top end to, to try to address it. So it's good policy, but they've been a little slow on the uptake given that they've been government for six years. So Erica, tell us about um, the Liberals housing plan and um, this rent to own thing that they're proposing. And let me know how I get a VCR out of it. <laughs> I want a brand spanking new VCR and I want to pay it off over 20 years. <laughs> so the Liberals, um, I guess, added to their housing affordability cadre of policies and uh, came out with this um, rent-to-own policy for homeowners or for people who want to enter the housing market. Because as we know, the housing market is nuts right now. People are outbidding themselves for homes. Um, I think what happened was for, so with the pandemic, uh, what they were predicting was a K-shaped recovery. And you know, if you worked in tech, tech, banks, um, corporate headquarters, uh, basically white collar workers and educated workers who could work from home saved a lot of money and then spent it on homes. They gathered up some hefty down payments for homes, which caused a housing market. Just it's just a nuts housing market, basically. And so the affordability question that we were talking about last week comes into play here. And there are a lot of people who are trying to get into the housing market who can't. I mean, who can afford a $100,000 down payment or an $80,000 down payment, especially as you go um, down the income scale and those who have been severely hit by the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. However, here's the problem. The Liberals have proposed rent to own a rent-to-own policy where the tenant, you live in a place, you're paying rent, but you pay higher than normal rent, so above market price, with a portion of that money going towards a down payment for the property that you will end up purchasing at the end of the um, lease option agreement. So the tenant has the option to buy the property at a market rate that's locked in, I believe, from the beginning. Um, tenants are also typically required to put down a, a deposit of about 5% of the final sale price, which will be held by the homeowner as credit towards the price of the home at the end of the lease option. And nothing wrong could go with this plan at all, by the way. It's perfect. Anyway, so let's say a homeowner wants to sell for $200,000. I don't know. This, this scenario is in the Toronto Star, and really the Toronto Star should know better, considering that on the back end, they're telling us about people making on their own who are 25 and buying million-dollar homes. But anyway, I digress. So a homeowner wants to sell for $200,000. The house typically rents for $1,000 a month. After a $10,000 deposit, a rent-to-own tenant might pay $1,300 a month in rent, 
with 300 of each payment as a credit towards the down payment. On a three-year lease, the tenant would have paid 10,800 towards the down payment. Add those credits to the initial deposit and the renter will have 20,800 for down payment. So if the tenant decides to break the rent to own agreement or decides the property is not suitable, they may lose their deposit. And depending on how well the contract is written, may lose all the money that was put aside for the down payment or a small portion back. In some cases, your agreement may be void if you're late on rent at any time, meaning not only do you get evicted, but you could also potentially lose thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. It's a scam. And like, you know, so and now and the liberals are, are basically, let me just say, now the liberals are basically proposing predatory lending as a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like if someone's just like running those numbers and it doesn't sound like a lot, first of all, where in Toronto are you getting a thousand dollars a month for rent? Um, so like let's pretend that that's not a thing. Um, but also I believe there are scenarios in which the quote unquote landlord isn't responsible for any uh, of the costs associated with the property. So like if you want renovations, if you need work done, any sort of thing like that also falls to the person who's renting, right? So if you are working on a very fixed income or living on a very fixed income, those additional costs, you can't afford them. Just build public fucking housing. Jesus Christ. I've just lost my patience with this nonsense. It's gimmicky, right? It's full of gimmicks. And they're also talking about this $40,000 account that's basically a TFSA for housing, is my read, my understanding of it. Yeah. Uh, subject just, to, to further details. I was just, but, yeah, I follow some like financial Instagram accounts. And one of them was just like, oh, like things like that first time home buyers $40,000 account and TFSAs are basically things that only benefit the wealthy. Yeah. And she got a whole bunch of like, DM like angry DMs being like oh like how does it benefit the wealthy like it's good for everyone because they can save okay sure but like it was only like 51% of or 57% of Canadians have TFSAs almost none of them or like a very small percentage of them are actually maxed out Mm -hmm. and if you're living if you're renting or if you're um, living paycheck to paycheck then you can't afford to save and you're not going to have a TFSA yeah yeah only 100%. people who are making who are making enough to save yeah is why it benefits the wealthy and perhaps wealthy isn't the right word but like it's people who have enough financial stability in order to save so i, I guess i have know. a stupid question why not just take all the money that we're going to pour into uh boutique nonsense and just give provinces money and municipalities money to build public housing contingent on things like density and access to transit why don't we just give money to build stock that's non-market because the municipalities are lobbied by developers have you met the city of ottawa city council yeah well, vancouver, i mean i've lived in vancouver for nearly 10 years and and you know it is it is the heart of that that problem but it, to me it's sort of like we know the problem the problem is there aren't enough units for people 
And of course, there's quote unquote, an affordability issue, but for some people, it's never going to be affordable and just building market stocks not going to do it. So you need a mix of, you know, the traditional market stock, sure, but you need public housing that people can afford in cities. And if you can't build that, then you're not going to solve the crisis. These people have never met a poor person. No, no, they haven't. Not one that wasn't thrown up on stage for a photo op anyway. You know what's killing me? All these people are talking about affordable housing while like Herringate Tenant Coalition has been fighting to stay in their homes for how long? That's a great fucking example of what happens in this country. 2018. Exactly. Exactly. So don't don't tell us that you're going to you're not going to fix the problem because this problem is obviously structural. So if you're not, nobody, and that's the problem. Nobody is addressing the structural issues. Yeah. Except surprisingly more, the conservatives are. They're the, they're the ones who are like, you know, maybe like they're, they're still teetering around the edges, Mm. but even they're more ambitious and the liberals are giving us memes as policy. That's what they're giving us. Yeah. The NDP, to their credit, is talking about building uh, non-market housing and building more units. I talked to someone recently for a piece I was writing on housing from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, who said to me, uh, we need 65,000 units uh, in in Vancouver, (laughs) right? And, you know, good luck, (laughs) right? Uh, that's Vancouver proper. No one's yeah. No one's talking about uh, uh, enough, and yeah, this isn't gonna do it. <sighs> and the thing is, is that people normal quote unquote normals, um, they didn't pay attention to the rent to own thing. No, the people in my in my Twitter feed and on Facebook and that I talked to. They're just like, oh yeah, they're gonna uh, make blind bidding illegal. Love that, great. So that's that's the you know remember the election or the budget where Stephen Harper got rid of the penny and that was the thing that everyone glommed onto and there was a million stories about the penny. Yeah, but yeah, this is the thing that like the shiny thing that everyone really is like paying attention to. No one cares. Normals don't care about rent own. No, of course they don't. Yeah. What's really sad about that is is one is there's a there's a backlog, right? And, and so you need a bunch of new, and then you need units per year, right? <laughs> Just to, to maintain a basic level. And not only, so we're not, we're talking about the backlog, but, but then how do you keep moving year after year after year after year? So year? what you're saying is that there's a stock and a flow concept to this. Huge. Okay. Huge. And, and, I don't think any of these plans sufficiently address it. I mean, the NDP is talking non-market housing, which is good. And they're talking about supporting renters in the meantime. And I, I was very critical of that policy in, at the outset. It wasn't communicated clearly. I followed up. The details of that policy are that the NDP would be giving uh, folks uh, rental subsidies for those who spend 30% or more of their income on rentals up to a certain income cap. Those were two important details that were not plainly released at the top of the policy release, which ought to have been, but they do help. So the NDP has this idea that we're going to help people in the short term and then we're going to build, you know, affordable housing, public housing, 
as well for a structural problem. But I don't see any of these plans as being adequate. And part of the problem I think that fuels this crisis is that is, as Eric and, and uh, you mentioned Eric and Aaron, it's a municipal issue. It's also a provincial issue. It's also a federal issue. Mm -hmm. Three levels of government that get to pass the buck. So I'm not surprised when it gets done. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, everyone can hide behind someone else. The municipalities say, "Well, we don't have enough money from the province and from the feds." Province says, "We don't have enough money from the feds." The feds say, "It's not our jurisdiction. It's up to you. Plus, you're not developing properly. It's a zoning issue." And the municipalities don't want to play ball. The municipalities are taking all the developer money. Uh, it's an absolute shit show. And um, I don't think it's going to get solved by anybody, incidentally. I think, but, but I will say this, there's better and there's worse. There's better and there's worse, but I think it's, it, it's, a, it's here to stay. Also, by the way, who thought it was a brilliant idea to tie everybody's retirement to their home ownership so that everyone becomes terrified of harming equity and, and lowering prices because they don't want anyone to go bust in their retirement because they put it all in their homes. Well, that's the type of structural structural issues that I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. That it's it's with we're talking about housing. Um, and, you know, there's a return. There is like the return to labor and the return to capital is really and the way the government taxes those things is or really not. <laughs> or not is really what has spurred this income inequality this wealth inequality mm -hmm. and we're just exacerbating it because people do put all their money into their homes mm -hmm. there's no other way for people to build wealth other than real estate so everybody's because we don't have access or knowledge or connections or whatever to the other parts beyond say mutual funds or, or, you know, your local TD, like series a level in, you know, investor advisor. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it forces people into this, this bucket where, you know, everything is about home ownership and everything has to do with the home. You end up years later, you become a senior and your house rich and cash poor. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, um, which then affects the amount of money the government gives you. So it's a vicious cycle, really. And um, really, the only thing that you could do is as if you're a senior and you're in that situation because you're in a fixed income in inflation is rising. Inflation is something else. I'm going to tack on to this in a second. Um, inflation is rising. Your money doesn't go as far. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that there is just a, a whole structural problem that's based on class here that we're not even talking about or delving into a note on inflation and what and how Trudeau just dismissed monetary policy. Um, what do you think inflation is? You know, what do you think mon monetary policy is? Right. It deals with inflation. And um, you know, what's what I think everybody should be afraid of is those same people who over the last year paid a million five for their, you know, 1800 square foot house. OK, need to be concerned about that inflation, because that's what's going to happen. 
raising interest rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has to happen. Yeah. So, low because of the pandemic. So yeah, this is all because of the pandemic. Like, obviously, housing was was a huge chronic issue before because it was a structural issue. And if you look at who's suffering from housing now, it's more and more single, it's more and more families, right? Who are supposed to be the stable. We cut out our social safety net. This is what we get. That's, that's the way it is. We're either going to pay on the back end or the front end, but we're going to pay. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. So it's, this is why I'm not a politician. Mm-hmm. I would have to say hard truths and people be like, can't you leave with something positive? I'm like, What's positive about this? You tell me, please. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. on my outline, I have what the actual fuck conservatives, um, because this week, you know, as we have alluded to, the conservatives aren't seem to be the only party looking to address more systemic issues and more like the root causes of issues. And this week they announced the employee savings account, which is for gig workers so like an uber driver or an uber eats delivery person and forcing the which would force the company so uber the parent company to contribute um cpp and ei for them in case they are unable to work um reactions this is pretty shocking i thought they got they got so close they got so close and First of all, I mean, this is very much the appeal to the worker strategy with things that are notable and in some ways welcome, but not particularly transformative. Uh, having a seat on the board is like that too, with federally regulated corporations, so on. That's another one. Uh, I saw a couple of people point out uh, good, but if you really cared about this, you would just stop misclassifying these workers, right? And you would give them status as employees and full normal CPP NDI, um, which are, as, as one person put it, I can't remember who, the ultimate universal portable programs, right? Because the CPC is touting this as portable. And this other person was saying, just cl- stop misclassifying workers. And but, so but David, it's welcome, but like. Uh, David. Yes. You guys, yeah, like, what's this? What's with these savings accounts? Like, why do they think that we don't have places to put extra money? Well, the irony to me is that, like... I, like, the problem no- is there is no extra money. Right, well, <laughs> yeah. this is what I mean. Like, you make the employer pay I'm CPP sorry. and EI, like normal employers pay CPP and EI, right? Like, we're talking about food delivery services, gig economy stuff here, right? And it's like, right, right, you want the employer to do that so that people have this stuff for when they need to retire. As if anyone's ever going to retire, by the way. But, you know, in theory. And like that's Okay, this is on the employer side. Sorry, sorry, sorry. My bad. Yeah, it's employer side. My bad. Yeah, it's employer side. Sorry, I didn't get that. (laughs) Yeah, it's employer paid. This is the whole conceit, though, right? Is that, like, if these companies are paying things that that they pay workers, then why are they just not workers? Like, employees. Yeah. It's a classification problem. I mean, and in fact, one critique is that it entrenches the gig economy because now you have uh, an effectively established an order and uh, of of misclassified workers, and then said, okay, well, this is how it works, right? We're going to take gig workers, we're going to misclassify them as part-time gig temp, you know, whatever you call it, uh, workers, 
not part-time, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a term for it. I can't, I can't remember. They're not full-time, full employees. And, uh, and we're going to make sure they've got a little something, but it's certainly second class compared to saying, no, they're your employees. They pass the, what, what do you call it? The, the ABC test and, uh, and they're employees. So pay their full EI, pay their full P, uh, CPP and pay their payroll hard. tax. It's harder to do that, right? Well, the, the thing about independent oh. contractors, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> it just came to me. They're, 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 you know, they're classified as in, independent contractors and not employees. And that's the fundamental problem. Yeah. Um, so one, there was that California announcement this week, this week, last week, where there, the law that was passed recently or last year, I suppose, that um, made all of their gig workers contractors only. So like the court turned that over and said it was unconstitutional. That's in California, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, there's some data that came out this week that said that women have been joining the gig workforce, um, particularly during the pandemic, because they're the ones who lost their jobs during COVID. And now they're trying to one, gain extra money, but two, still trying to balance childcare and home life because- mm -hmm. It's well, the flexibility, right, too? That's the other thing. I, the traditional nine to five job needs to go. It always was, you know, oppressive. It is- I feel like I feel like the dude on Twitter who said Friday meetings are anti-black. Mm -hmm. um, and like, it's just time we start reimagining these things. Like we're, we're holding on to a structure that's broken and it's wasteful and it's bloated and it, it you know, and by all means, people in power like the way it's working because they're benefiting. I get that. But let's not try to pretend that we're wedded to a hierarchy um, that is oppressive, as hierarchies usually are. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's there's there's a hierarchical way of organizing our our structures that then builds a value base on that hierarchy and is then replicated, right? Mm -hmm. And so my whole thing is that, first of all, I think hierarchies need to go, but um, um, at the end of the day, we have an opportunity, since everything's so shit, to actually do better and to, <laughs> I, I can't believe this went through my head. Build Back Better went through my head and I'm so ashamed <laughs> at this. But you know what I mean? Like, I... I, I just think that at this point, all of these employee savings plans and shit like, like, fuck off. Fuck off with that. Let's get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that gig workers, we've allowed technology companies to redetermine an oppressive labor market or to determine an oppressive labor market. We gave them money to do so because they don't pay their taxes. So they're oppressing us on our dime. Mm -hmm. Think about that shit. Mm -hmm. And now you have politicians who gave them carte blanche or saying, oh, well, you know, we'll only help you out, but, you know, halfway. 
just do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of thing where our political division is also our economic division. And we have been good at creating winners and losers and the loser pile is growing. And the people who were once winners are now losers. That can't be good. I'm just saying. Yeah. There's my spiel. Yeah. Also, while you were talking, for whatever reason, it came to me earlier, I said 65,000 units and it's 6,500. And uh, now I understand how politicians, quote unquote, misspeak. 6,500 units in Vancouver. The, I thought 65,000 was entirely plausible. <laughs> That's the thing, given right. housing in Vancouver. Anyways, it's between zero and a million, but it, it yeah. <laughs> but it has a six and a five. Yeah, and, and uh, can you believe we're, we're just sort of up on the two week out of six mark of this thing? <laughs> <sighs> and we're already so the exhausted. NDP, they're fine. They didn't really do anything. They didn't ruffle any feathers, really. They They had moments where they, you know, where there was a sort of stimulus and response detectable. And the idea of nationalizing Rivera, the long-term care home that's owned by a crown corporation, was something I welcomed. Yeah, that was probably their their highlight of the week. I thought that was the, the big moment. And then, of course, getting screwed by Elections Canada, who are not running the on campus voting. Can you explain that? Why it? Oh, because of COVID. Well, so the, I'll give you the real quick rundown. In 2015, they launched this pilot program under the majority Liberal government to put polling stations, special return polling stations, uh, on campuses. And the idea being that there are students there, but also faculty, staff, others who will have to vote abroad, away from their home riding rather. And basically, it was a little special office where you could do that. This time they said, well, we can't do that because of the quote unquote, the minority government situation and the pandemic. And which it was to say that we didn't have time to coordinate plan, book space and so on and so forth. And so we're not gonna do it. And the pushback to that is, well, he seemed to be able to find lots of space in seniors homes as a rule, must be nice. And you see, you should be ready all the time because it's literally your job, right? And, and you know, Lyle Skinner, who pays very close attention to this stuff, said on Twitter, look, uh, a government could fall at any time, majority or minority. We've seen snap elections before. We've seen, we saw it under Kitching. So your job as Elections Canada is to be always ready to go because you never know when there's going to be an election. It's not, it has nothing to do with the minority parliament. It could happen in a majority and has. In fact, I would argue we got more notice under this minority government than we got under Kretschmann when he decided to have a snap election under a majority. So it's not a majority minority thing. And mm-hmm. they just failed. And I think it's neglect. I think it's fundamentally a question. Of, I don't doubt that they weren't prepared for it, but that's the problem. It's a case of, of suppression by neglect. And it, I think it undoes a lot of work they've been doing for a long time to get young people out. And it, and it disproportionately harms in order the NDP and the Liberals, and it benefits the Tories. And it's an awful shame. And so let's talk quickly about that idea of suppression, because I know that there were some people on Twitter who were saying that voter suppression isn't a thing. And I think they forgot the in Canada part, but they omitted it. Um, So it made it seem like there is no voter suppression, period. 
but I I'll be generous and say I think they meant in Canada. Yes, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I told you all about that man. <laughs> I, I no, but I I think uh, you know when there are some people who who see this and their their lens of analysis is individual responsibility and duty. And if that's what you adopt, you say, well, look, you can vote by mail. You can vote in, uh, ahead of time. Uh, you can change your address uh, and vote from the new riding and so on and so forth. There's, there's plenty of options to vote and that's all well and true. The pushback is uh, it's you as an individual aren't representative of everybody and you ought to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a young person going away to school for the first time in the midst of a pandemic who's trying to sort out all of this stuff or a person away at university who's working all the time and studying all the time and is deeply stressed and is young is still developing skill sets and still navigating a political system and say we ought to make it as easy as possible for these folks to vote because they bear as a, as a class or as a group uh, typical but atypical burdens that are common amongst them. And so we want to do that, especially because they're, they're disenfranchised as a rule, they turn out much lower. They aren't particularly courted by parties or by special interests. And there's a huge spread between the young folks that turn out and the older folks that turn out. The 18 to 24 spread compared to 55 plus, 20, sometimes 30 points. And on top of it all, we want them to build habits so that they turn out as a rule. And now's the time to get them. And because of that, we want to go out of our way to make sure they can vote. That's the pushback. I think it's pretty reasonable. So the you Green know, Party. Just grind, it grinds my gears. Grinds so my the Green gears. Party. What's Speaking of. Green? Well, actually, wouldn't that, wouldn't, that, um, wouldn't that whole Elections Canada thing affect the Greens negatively too? I wonder. I, I don't know. When the, the data that I've seen most recently from Leger it was the liberals, the the Tories and the NDP. And I, I don't, the Greens, must, you know, it's funny, brains play tricks on you. The Greens must have been on the graph, but I don't recall seeing them, <laughs> to be honest. You know what? That's a great, great metaphor for, you know, the fact that we don't really have much to say about the Greens. Yeah. And they don't have much to say about themselves either. Yeah. And why is that? Why is that, people? It's because they don't have a new platform and uh, their platform for 2021 is to look at their platform for from 2019. Um, By the way, the Greens were on the graph, 5% for the Greens. 37, this is the Leger poll from, from August 20 to 22nd, voting intention for voters 18 to 34. I'm reading it off the site. Uh, 37% intend to vote for the NDP, 27 for the Liberals, 23 for the Tories and five for the Greens. So there you go. Four for the Bloc and four for the PPC. The Greens are slightly ahead of the PPC among young people. Yikers. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, so the Greens, you know, not putting on a new platform, despite the fact that, um, you know, there was literally a report that said the planet is burning and their whole reason for existing is climate change. Um, so that's cool. <laughs> they couldn't even cobble together a climate plan. I, I've never seen a party who wants to be both taken seriously and does not give a flying fuck. 
as much as the greens. Like, I don't, I don't. I have to say, uh, in, in sort of semi-defense of the greens, the the 2021 NDP platform looks an awful lot like the 2019 NDP platform in a lot of ways. Yes. They at least, listen, they at least put a, put a little lipstick on that pig, you know, shine up. <laughs> No, what I'm saying is, is they have a lot more, they have, they have a leader that's been around for a while and more resources. And the Greens are doing this with a leader who faced an obstructionist party and, and is new and far fewer resources than the rest. And I think they just, I think they just don't have it in them. I just think they, they don't have the time. They don't have the, the staff. They don't have the money to do it. And it's, you see how these themselves. things pile up. Yeah. They yeah. destroyed themselves. And yeah. this is a natural, you know, outcome of that they destroy yeah. themselves you don't pick 100%. a fight with your fucking leader in in like in are you public? stupid ahead of an election yeah but you know ahead of an election that everyone knew was fucking coming like this started back in maine like whispers were happening back in the spring it's like they're like an ouroboros you know like god they just love fucking themselves and then blaming everyone else who, because we don't understand Israel and Palestine. Like, fuck off. I'm so annoyed by the Greens. I'm just so annoyed by that entire party. Okay. And then, of course, the block released their platform, which was nice of them. Which who? Was, yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're looking for a wild read, let me tell you. Read some news about that. I'm from Alberta. We don't do the block. <laughs> and, so, and it's funny is that a lot of the country just doesn't pay attention to the block and, and which I understand that completely. And yet they sort of, they are within the neighborhood of the NDP as a rule for, for seats, right? <laughs> or close, uh, sometimes ahead. And, and yet we sort of think of them as an afterthought in, in the rest of the country, even though they shape it so much, including myself, by the way, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. Uh, I just think it's a fascinating dynamic. Were there so, any, did anything stand out, Aaron, that, that, that made your eyes bulge? Um, well, they do want to abolish the Indian Act, um, but only because they want to create nation, well, so they want to create nation and nation agreements, which is like what should be done, but yeah. they want to do it because they believe Quebec is a separate nation. Sure. Uh, yeah, they're paving. Yeah. <laughs> They, so, they also want to sign, have, have Quebec uh, sign all international treaties. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> the duchy of Quebec. <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah, it's like, let me tell you, it's a wild ride. I encourage you to read it just for fun. Um, but no, my question is, is I guess, I don't understand why the bloc wants to actually be in parliament when their whole reason for existing is to separate from Canada. Like, how are they, how do they square that circle, right? They want a separate nation, but they also want all the benefits of being part of Canada. But, but also not Quebec strategy in general. I don't, I don't, I don't. Like, I feel like that's Quebec in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, they want all the benefits you know, good luck with that. Good, <laughs> good luck with that currency you start floating. It's my question. Good luck with that. How's your monetary policy? Yeah. 
lord um anyway erica i know you have, some, you have a prediction about the ppc i do i think the ppc is going to get more seats than the greens like a two to one kind of thing or a three to two what are we talking yeah about? like like elizabeth may will probably keep her seat right yes um other than that but i could see the ppc squeezing out one or two And I think it's like Southern, okay, somewhere in rural Alberta or like rural BC. Like, you know, it's like the Fernieism of it all. It's mm-hmm. like Fernie BC. See, this is a very, we just got very meta Western, um, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Well, you guys, yeah, you guys know what yeah. I'm talking about. So like that area, I really do think that the whole vaccine mandatory vaccine mandate will play well for the PPC right now. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. And if that's what they're going to run on and they're going to run on freedoms and shit, trust me. Yeah. I could see, I could see them terribly. And then when you interview people who like, who, who voted PPC, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't like, it's going to be like a Donald Trump thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's unfortunate that they're racist, but you know, I'm here for personal freedoms. Like that's what it's going to be. That's my prediction. And of course, we'll end up with another minority government, of course, whether it's liberal or conservative right now is up in the air. Mm-hmm. But my question to you guys is, does it really matter? if we have a liberal minority or a conservative minority? I mean, uh, I think like this conservative minorities. Well, I guess it depends what you mean by matter. I'm, I'm going to hedge a little bit here. Yeah. Oh, I think Lord. it matters in... <laughs> Fine, go on. No, I, I do think it will matter in, in notable ways for people, especially depending on how the NDP decides to behave itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, uh, that's a question Jagmeet has uh, been avoiding this week. Yeah. And then the, the long-term structure of the, of the country, I don't know. I mean, O'Toole wants to, has less ambitious climate targets than he wants yeah. to use the Harper targets. Trudeau doesn't, although we've, routinely miss our targets anyway. that's what i mean that's my uh, real question David. yeah the, the the child care the child care programs vary if you if you believe the liberals are going to do ten dollar a day and that's going to open spaces there was some analysis done that suggests that the liberals would save you more money as, as right. a parent yes. in certain places than the conservatives I so think, i do think there are different. yeah 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 Structurally, material yeah I, I think i think the child care will be the big the big difference so i do think there, there are differences uh will you wake up five years from now and not recognize the country depending on who wins i don't think so i don't think so uh, although that said i mean i also i think if you look at the conversion therapy bill and who voted against it yeah i, I think a lot of in the lgbt yeah plus community would say that yeah but again so th- that's what i mean by it depends right so on a yeah, lot yeah, of important yeah. stuff but structurally i don't think it, neither of them are going to upend the social, political, and economic structures of the country. I think it mar- matters more for marginal communities yes. than it does for like, um, you know, your two kids 
you know, nuclear white, family. your nuclear family. Going through um, these platforms, has, speaking of nuclear families, has really shown me that apparently Canada thinks that everybody's in a nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or they're about to be in a nuclear family. Yes. And wants to own a home. And-, and wants to own a home. Like the way we think about the way adults are in this country are like our policies don't match the actual, the way we are. Like um, Aaron and I have talked about, I think we've talked about this off, off mic about, um, you know, the growing power of single educated women. Yeah. And when I say single, I mean, unmarried, not necessarily, you know, whatever. Right. But, you know, that's a growing coalition. There's a coalition of, you know, indigenous activists and so on and so forth. The point being that there was a time when the, when climate activists were fringe, now they're not, and they're affecting policy. So yeah, I think it matters to more to marginalized, traditionally marginalized communities um, than it does, than it really will matter to the rest of the country. Um, however, it's funny because I think a lot of us think that they're basically all the same anyway. Right. And is it better to have a liberal government that promises stuff and doesn't deliver than a conservative government that doesn't talk about you at all? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes into our next topic. I'm like, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that question, but like, even looking at the party's websites and like looking at the candidates, uh, I don't see myself really in an, like either the conservatives or the liberal candidates. Like I don't see myself anywhere in the political spectrum. So like, there's li- that. The, the liberals of 2015, that's not the-, the Oh, that died. That, list that died, yeah. Not fair. There's a I lot th- of real old white men. And listen, spoiler, not a really old white man. I'm a young boy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I mean, you look older than you are because of your situation. Yeah. <laughs> you can say beard. I, no, I also meant hair. No, 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 no. There's a whole situation. Oh, it's see. not just the beard. Oh, I it's see. like. You know, there's a holistic situation happening is basically what we're saying. That's fair. Cousin in wants his style back. Listen. Yeah. I mean, aren't you hot? (laughs) Temperature wise. Temperature wise. Uh... You have to go outside to be hot. Hmm. I see he's not showing us his place this time. No, it's it's fine. It's normal. It's the same as ever. I uh, yeah. But yeah. The CBC had a had a, a data visualization this week that uh, basically said that white men, you know, one get more money as candidates, two are elected more often, uh, and three, they're disproportionately. I guess what you're trying to say is that they're these are the indicators of their disproportionate power in parliament. They're they're also put in. Um, party strongholds so they're more likely to get elected than like women of color white women indigenous candidates um, other racialized candidates so like you know I think when the Ottawa center seat came up and I think when Adam Vaughn said that he wasn't going to be seeking re-election 
And I think there was like a whole bunch of them and all three of us were just like, oh, yeah, cool. I can't wait to see which white men they're going to throw into those liberal strongholds. It's not even that they're even just replacing them with other white men. They're they're like your typical white men, the white men who um, basically got us into these messes that we're fixing now or trying to fix. Tell me how Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, I would say the two of them can sit here and say, we'll fix shit when they were part of breaking it in the first place. Well, that's what white men mean in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, this is an old problem that, that people and organizations and researchers have talked about for a long time. And they've said, look, uh, you, you want more women in parliament then run them in winnable ridings and they'll win. When Canadians are given the chance to vote for women, they vote for them. They don't say, well, I'm not going to vote for a woman. No, they win. But parties are the problem because they're not running women in, in winnable ridings. And, and so riding associations are the problem because they don't support the yeah. candidates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's a party problem, uh, I, I think, fundamentally, not exclusively, maybe, but it's certainly fundamentally, it's a party problem. And they, and they do vary, right? The NDP does better than the Liberals, who did better than the Tories, and so on and so forth. But uh, we, we do know how to solve the problem, right? Run women in winnable ridings. Uh, that, and then, of course, then there are the broader structural critiques of, you know, why don't women run? Like, look what they have to go through to present themselves in the first place. So, I mean, it's a matter of, of parties trying to get women to run and then support them. My God. I mean, I guess the, the second part of that is you've, you've got to have the backs of these women who are putting themselves through disproportionate amounts of abuse and hell to do the work. Uh, because it's awful. And, and I, I don't know how the parties stack up on that because I'm not on the inside of that, but I, my sense is it's not ideal. So uh, I think it's time to switch gears here, Erica. Uh, Erica, so this week, um, Tiffany the jeweler. Um, I don't know her. <laughs> not surprising. <laughs> Given his situation. Given my whole situation. <laughs> I mean, for many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, they they launched a new campaign. So they first of all they launched a campaign a couple months ago called "Not Your Mother's Tiffany's," and they're trying to be jazzy and new again. They're trying to reclaim that like Elsa Peretti vibe of the '80s, which sure, and you know Tiffany and jewelry kind of not really or high end jewelry not in uh, not as much cachet as it used to once have in the early aughts. It's a sick Audrey Hepburn burn. It totally is. Aren't they supposed to be like classic? They want to be. They want to be edgy now. Is that the idea? They just. They just want to listen. They just want to make some more money. Well, actually, I would say that. Okay, Tiffany's. It's it's Tiffany's is a big. It's a broader trend in retail, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these retailers lost a whole generation. Think of Victoria's Secret, right? right? Because because. You know, my, I was talking about this with my dad last night and he's like, I, I finally understand why you love pop culture. He's like, it sets the context. And I'm like, yeah. And the context is changing real fast. More, mm-hmm. the context is changing more rapidly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this pandemic has definitely been a context changer, but carry on. Yeah, so basically they did the Not Your Mother's Tiffany's and now they launched their new campaign called About Love and it stars uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce. And so if you 
you know, read the news, you follow them on Instagram, then you would have seen the photos. Um, and, you know, we've got Beyonce wearing this black dress and like an hourglass figure. Um, there's a Bas Basquiat painting that is like, has a background that's similar to the Tiffany blue. Jay-Z's got his hair done like Basquiat and uh, down Beyonce's back is facing the camera and it's like a deep cut dress. And there's the Tiffany diamond. Uh, she's wearing it with the diamond backwards. And she's the first black woman to be wearing the Tiffany diamond. It was last worn um, by Lady Gaga to the 2019 Oscars. Um, the uh, Mrs. Sheldon White, White House was the first to wear the stone uh, to the Tiffany ball in 1957. And then it was set into a new necklace um, for promo shots for breakfast at Tiffany's and worn by Audrey Hepburn in 1961. And then after that, it was set into a brooch called Bird on a Rock. Let me tell you, this brooch is real fucking ugly. The Tiffany diamond basically served as the rock and they just put a bejeweled ugly bird that looks like a pineapple head on top of it. And they're like, this is cool. Um, and uh, it's one of the most famous designs by the, the jeweler. And then now it was being worn by Beyonce. That's neat. So, um, yeah. <laughs> it's been- I mean... Clear the runway, folks. I just wanna, I, I, I've been looking forward to Erica's take on this for, for, a, for some time now. Oh, well, that's a, I don't know if I, anyway. Wow, pressure. Pressure. I won't let you down, David. I know. Um, so here's the thing about that. Like the whole thing is just, it's that context setting again. It's very rare that Beyonce, Beyonce has really been good at, 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 manipulating trends right and um highlighting some things and and not highlighting others if you rem remember during a lot of the black lives matter protests they quietly gave money to um a lot of those organizations who were helping out those who were arrested at the protests like they have been quietly um asserting their influence Asserting their influence in social justice matters. Mm. But that's a double-edged sword, as we all know <laughs> yes. from experience. It's a double-edged sword. And, and on one hand, you can be on the right side of everything and you make one slip up or one misjudgment and that's it. Here's the thing. like We're in the middle of, we're still in a pandemic. And this idea of Black liberation is really um, like capitalism. And I think those are, are concurrent trends that are parallel trends that, um, that are, really, are really questioning capitalism and capitalism as this freeing force. And if you look at Afghanistan, that's exactly what's happening in real time, right? It's this idea of Western capitalism as a freeing force of liberation that is that Af Afghanistan just the situation has just um, symbolically crumbled, right? 
And so for Beyonce, in a time when Black people have disproportionately suffered from COVID, have been disproportionately denied vaccines through structural accessibility reasons and structural issues, whose Black wealth has evaporated and always evaporates in every downturn, a lot of people are questioning this neoliberal idea that Jay-Z and Beyonce have for Black liberation, this, this capitalist Western idea. There's something very nakedly American about it too that really was, in my mind, a bit of a middle finger to the rest of the African diaspora, okay? We, I mean, diamond mining, Beyonce, really? The colonialist history, the violent history of diamond mining, the diamond that Beyonce was wearing was discovered in a colonial mine in Kimberley, South Africa in 1877, at a time when the country and its mines were under British rule. Colonialism! And when predominantly Black migrant workers were subjected to horrific conditions while receiving paltry pay in return, if any. So basically indentured servitude, I would say, probably. This is, there are lots of histories of imperialism, colonialism, white supremacy, um, apartheid, because if, if you think of mining in South Africa, it really did pave the way for apartheid in South Africa. So literally, this diamond is celebrating all of that. And to put it on a Black woman is not the win you think it is. And this is the thing about Americans, and when they talk about white supremacy in this American structure, they understand it in a very direct way, not in a colonialist, imperialist way, and definitely not in a British British colonialist, imperialist way, or French colonialist, imperialist way, or German or Italian or anything like that. And, you know, for a woman who made an album last year about how much she loves Africa, really, Beyonce, that's all I have to say, like, really, really? It's, 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 it's a misstep. And apparently, um, the Daily Mail reported that she was pissed off at the backlash, because she wasn't told of the history. And I'm like, what's wrong with Googling? I guess that's why she has, she hires people to do it for her. She doesn't have a cell phone. I mean, I can't, I can't, I just have a hard time picturing Beyonce um, sitting there being like, engage in some sort of debate and being like who was that person in that movie in like 1962 and then googling it like i think she just asked well, that's what before. that's what the imdb app is for though <laughs> <laughs> but 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 let me not just put this on beyonce because that would be quite um gender discriminatory of me let's talk about jay-z who i have a very big problem with because this is the same jay-z bets against black liberation daily okay jay-z is the one who signed that deal with the nfl to do their racial sensitivity shit and their cultural branding shit intentionally and the, Bowl, and the super bowls and the super bowls intentionally a fucking over calling kaepernick okay so that's one thing Jay-Z and his, his capitalist, I want to be a billionaire. Well, good for fucking you. You know, I laugh 
knowing that Rihanna got there first. But anyway, um, and this is the other thing. How does this, how does Beyonce compare with Rihanna in terms of, you know, that sort of global capitalist model? And, but then Rihanna doesn't really sell it as black liberation. And I think that's maybe the difference. So that's, that's my spiel on it. Yeah. And I think that that's right. And I think that Beyonce and Jay-Z are, are less interested in, well, I don't want to say less interested because I don't think that's fair, particularly if she is upset that she didn't know this history of colonialism and whatever. Um, But they're very focused on being capitalists, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're, they're more (laughs) interested in creating black generational wealth for their own family and not for others even though they think that that's what they want yeah because their wealth isn't going to get wiped out oh my gosh chris rock had a whole spiel about this he's like let me tell you the difference between rich and wealth he says rich can just disappear in a summer with a bad drug habit you know what i mean wealth is your like basically your name on buildings, you know what I mean? Mm. And so the point is, is that I think that like black generational wealth has been so um it 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 literally gets wiped out in a recession. So there is no black generational wealth. If there is, it's very much it's very paltry right? That's not wealth. Black people do better. And everybody's talking about in a certain context, in a certain time frame, and everybody's talking about um, black wealth. And I'm like, I don't see any wealth here. I see an income flow. That's different. You know what I mean? And so I, I just, I don't understand. I just think nowadays, especially, you know, in the, in the light of this pandemic, the it's this 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 whole idea of racialized wealth is not the panacea we think it is that's what i'm getting to it's and this is what liberate us to yeah and exactly and and, you know to aaron sort of intimated that but i've seen a lot of folks on the left now uh, say look class is the is the primary lens in a lot of these situations that will tell you what's true and what's not true and what's bullshit. And, mm. and identity is important, obviously. Uh, race is important, gender is important, sexuality is important. But to say that, well, we just want a different uh, distribution of billionaire oppressor <laughs> is not salvation, right? Say, well, we want, you know, we want the, the CEOs and the billionaire class and those who are stepping on the necks of the worker to come from all of life's diversity. Right? <laughs> no, we don't want any of it. Um, the fact that it has been disproportionately white historically um, is, is part of the problem, but the fact that it exists is the fundamental problem. And so we want to dismantle those structures. And, and so the class is an essential lens that we kind of ignore often on the left um, when we focus just on identity. And I think part of the challenge for the left going forward is going to be reconciling identity critiques and uh, with class critiques in a in a compelling way so that we just don't sort of turn around and recreate those structures but with a more diverse cast right and so i I don't know what that's going to look like 
but I do think it's important. Um, that said, I don't think it ought to be people like me leading that that element of the conversation. And I think part of that is um, is going to be pretty critical. But I do like to remind people, you know, as both you did, class is central and critical. And we are so bad in this country talking about class. Mm-hmm. We sort of think class just doesn't exist here. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do, which is especially in the media. They just the, our, our media is is weak on class and weak on power relations. Yeah, because they all come from the same class and seek yeah. the power relations. Yeah. <laughs> but the occasional great, you know, Shannon Proudfoot wrote a, a hell of a piece for McLean's on on class and, and the middle class. Uh, I talked to her about it. She was so engaged and thoughtful, and like really got it. Uh, so every so often there's someone who gets it and you see these pieces, but as a, as a, as a class, as a, the, the media as a class, weak on it. Most definitely, most definitely. But the whole, but this is the thing too, is that, is that, that again, is that neoliberalism mm-hmm. culturally it's, it's the, it's, it's the, it's, and, and you know what black leaders have been telling like a generation this it's the if you go to college then you don't have to really worry about racism because um racists just need education you know what i mean or remember when when you know um there used to be this belief that racism was because people were uneducated Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and um the more you, you know, know. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. Yet, what happens? The Wall Street Journal actually had a great piece this week about what happens when Black people do go to college and that they don't build wealth from it. That every recession, Black workers, Hispanic workers are the first to go. You know, mm-hmm. that's what happens last in, first out. And you know, why? Because there was another study um, done, I think it was a couple of years ago, about how Black, Hispanic, racialized workers are only hired after they get the white workers in and are hired as sort of assistants to the white workers, even if they have the same title, which could explain why women and racialized people are usually paid less. Mm. right so i mean there's a lot here and i'm probably making a lot of connections that'll whatever but um i think that this whole beyonce thing just opens up some real questions about what does what do we want as a society do we want freedom do we want liberation what do we want right and um because freedom and liberation aren't the same thing either so Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, that was fine, friends. That was yeah. excellent. Thank and, you for having uh, me once again. Well, you know, you can stay, I guess. Oh. Careful, I'll never say another nice thing to you ever again. It's real love. You can stay, I guess. She How won't. You know it's real. She won't say anything nice to you ever again. I'm on a bit of a sort of semi like rom-com uh, maudlin movie kick. And so that, it hits real hard. Oh, is it because of your cozy season? It must be. Uh, yeah. You no, know, it's I, because I, I watched sent you the sunrise. Starbucks email about the pumpkin spice thing. I was and there Aaron... day one. I walked over. <laughs> and then Aaron was like, like, 
seriously, you're sending this in August? And I'm just like, look, he wanted it. I was there. I first day I went and got one and it was very nice. And I get, you know, a couple days later I got another one. And it's it's yeah, I mean I watched before sunrise oh. again and then before sunset and then before midnight. Oh wow, uh, you went in. And uh, now I got yeah. Ooh, just me. Not even I would do that. Ooh. It's full like Hig- lonely Higge in my my apartment with with big fall vibes and soon to be gourds and don't say your dreams can't come true, kids, because they can and they do. Just the key is to dream real small. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a liberal platform in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you for your inspiring words, David Mostra. Thank you. And friends, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Stop recording. <laughs>